Jake Furtanen found not guilty. We're very relieved. The former Canucks' emotional response and why the legal battle isn't over yet. Plus, new images of the Langley shooting suspect, the appeal from investigators, and unease in the homeless community. What's going to happen out here now? And Nexus Nightmare. We're desperate now. We have no idea what's going to happen. The huge backup to Renew and how far one family is willing to go. You're watching Global BC. This is Global News Hour at 6. Good evening and thanks for joining us. Chris is off tonight. The verdict is in for former Canucks forward Jake Vertanen, and it's not guilty of sexual assault. Aaron MacArthur has more on the verdict, Vertanen's reaction, and how reasonable doubt was a key factor. As the foreperson read the verdict out loud, Jake Vertanen openly wept in court, his head in his hands. Former Vancouver Canuck Jake Vertanen drove away from court without saying a word. His criminal trial over, a huge weight lifted off his chest. His family huddled together in the courthouse, his mother and girlfriend visibly relieved by the verdict. Vertanen's legal team with nothing to say. Any comments at all on the verdict today, Mr. I don't have any comments. We're very relieved, but that's all I have to say. Jake Vertanen issued a statement through his agent saying he is relieved the jury reached its verdict. The statement goes on to talk about hockey. Vertanen saying, I'm looking forward to resuming my career as an NHL player. For my whole life, I've dreamed about playing the sport I love in the best league in the world. The sexual assault trial lasted a week, with both the complainant and accused taking the stand. There was very little corroborating evidence presented. The woman testifying she never gave consent. Vertanen testifying her consent came from her actions. Justice Wedge, in her instructions to the jury, made it clear what was needed for a conviction. Any reasonable doubt was enough to acquit. Defense lawyers say the evidentiary bar is so high, many potential victims never bother to seek justice through the criminal courts. It is unfortunate that our legal system puts victims through this process, but it's a failure of our system of justice and the most important concept of the beyond a reasonable doubt standard to require anything less before a conviction can be founded. The high profile nature of this case worries women's groups, wondering what message it sends to other potential victims. I think there's a growing consensus across many segments of society where the idea is to what extent can the, the legal system be a measure of justice for victims of sexual assault. There is still a civil trial to come. The complainant filed a claim before the criminal trial even began. It's unclear if the not guilty verdict will have an impact. Aaron McCarthy, Global News. Well, there are still many unanswered questions coming out of Langley, where a community is on edge following the deaths of two people and the shooting injuries of two more. Tonight, the Integrated Homicide Investigation Team is releasing images of the suspect in hopes of hearing more from witnesses. Krista Dow reports. More than one day after a lone gunman went on a violent shooting spree, killing two people and injuring two others, the homicide team now releasing two photos of the suspect, believed to have changed clothing throughout the course of his rampage. He was first encountered wearing the black t-shirt with the board shorts. Somewhere in the evening or the early morning of the 25th, he changed into the camouflage shirt with the brown coveralls. 
police have identified 28-year-old Jordan Daniel Goggin of Surrey as the shooter who was shot and killed by police Monday. Police say he did have a valid gun license. But the motive behind his alleged attacks remains unclear. Homicide investigators say they're searching for more witnesses to help flesh out the timeline. They're also not ruling out more victims. People that might have been shot at or some people he had even spoken to on the street, we hope that they would come forward. We're very live to the issue that there could be additional victims out there. It comes as the vulnerable community in Langley remains on edge now encouraging a buddy system. I think everybody's pretty nervous, actually. We're trying to stick together. Kind of sad for us going after homeless people. It's not right. Neighbors who knew the suspects say Goggin was acting erratically about a week before the shooting. From hearing him that night and seeing, like, he was not here. He was definitely somewhere else and very mentally, mentally and just, like, you know, and like looking. I get home from refing late night sometimes. I could see him, I get a Mazda 3, a white one. He'd be sitting in it and smoking, or he looked like uninfluenced sometimes. Officials are also drawing attention to the suspect's white Mazda in hopes of jogging someone's memory about a possible encounter. In the meantime, support workers and counselors were available at the nearby elementary school for anyone impacted by Monday's shootings. Krista Dow, Global News. The situation with the homeless encampment along Hastings Street could be coming to a head. The Vancouver Fire Chief has issued a special order to have the tents cleared, saying it's a potentially catastrophic fire risk. But advocates for the homeless say removing the tents won't solve the problem. Imadagahi reports. Getting access to windows and to doors is incredibly important for a fire alarm condition, a fire, and any kind of emergency. After a fire inspection of what is described as the tent encampment on this section of Vancouver's East Hastings Street, the fire department said it had no choice but to issue an order. The intent around the fire chief's order was to, to address the significant fire and life safety risk that currently occupies in that area right now. The fire chief Karen Fry's order calls for the removal of tents and materials from the 0 to 200 blocks of Hastings Street, saying the tents and temporary housing on the sidewalk block the entry and exits to buildings. And in the event of an emergency, the objects would get in the way of firefighters, also noting the portable fuel tanks found on site were dangerous. I've been down there a couple of times in the last few days, and it's it's, it's untenable. Like there's, there's far too many people, there's too many things and stuff, and it's complicated and confusing. The increased number of visible tents on East Hastings since the beginning of summer has been attributed to the end of police-accompanied so-called city street sweeps and the likelihood those living in poorly ventilated SROs needed to escape the heat. Vancouver's fire department says in the case of a fire in the area like this one in early July, the crowding seen on the sidewalk near Main and Hastings would prove catastrophic. But advocates who stormed in on a Vancouver fire press conference on Tuesday afternoon say moving tents would further displace people who already have nowhere else to go. There's no emergency weather shelter even though we're in a heat wave. There is nothing. And so while the fire department wants to say this order isn't about displacing people, where are people supposed to go? Where are they supposed to find shade? 
deeply systemic issues that require some sort of senior government intervention, mental health, addictions, housing. It can't be the city of Vancouver that continues to, to carry this for the region or the province. The fire department's order for immediate removal of structures is to be complied with by Wednesday, but it's unclear if and how it will be enforced. Emadagahi, Global News. Now to that contentious housing project in Kitsilano. The public has had its say. Now it's up to Vancouver City Council to decide the fate of the proposed supportive housing facility in Kits. Our Kamal Karamali is at City Hall tonight. Kamal, Council has heard from the public. Now they're debating. Yeah, Sophie, they heard from around 300 people over the span of a month. Now, today, BC Housing uh, staff as well as developers are giving their final comments to council, but emotions were still very high as a woman started uh, yelling from the gallery. BC Housing would look at opportunities in other, in other communities, including Vancouver, that have projects ready to go. We need to provide a clear answer, yes or no. Speaker, I'm just going to stop you there for a second. There was also plenty of cheering and applauding. Mayor uh, Stuart Kennedy asked the, the gallery to be quiet during the proceedings. Uh, what's being debated is the development of a 13-story social housing project uh, proposed for Arbuta Street between 7th and 8th Avenue. It would include 129 studio apartments. A minimum of half of the units would be reserved for people currently homeless or on income assistance. The other half would be put aside for people earning no more than $30,000 annually. Those against the project argue it's the wrong location, saying there isn't enough resources in the area to support the most vulnerable and could make the Kitsilano neighborhood a hotspot for crime and addiction. While those who are in favor for the project stress the importance of the project, the mayor has claimed BC Housing would pull its funding if this application isn't approved. BC Housing has said changing the height or size of the building could possibly jeopardize the project in continuing it. Um, doing nothing is not an option for BC Housing. Council wanted all three levels of government to work together on solutions for this crisis, which we are doing here with this proposal. Now, the tone of questioning and some of the inferences uh, by council make it appear that this project may get approved uh, as early as uh, tonight, Sophie. Meanwhile, uh, uh, council is continuing at this hour to question staff on some of the finer details of this proposal before uh, they likely uh, take a vote tonight. Back over to you for now. All right, we'll get updates uh, from you on BC1 and on Global News at 11 tonight. Kamal, thank you. Homicide investigators have identified the two women killed in last week's tragic domestic shooting in Chilliwack. 43-year-old Amber Cully and 49-year-old Mimi Cates were shot last Thursday at a home in the 9700 block of McNaught Drive in northeast Chilliwack. A man was also wounded but survived. Both Cully and Cates were mothers of young boys. Cully's family says she was the most compassionate and brave human they've ever known, and her children were her world. Cates, a longtime realtor on Vancouver Island, had just started a new job at Chilliwack Realty at a Chilliwack Realty company one week before she was killed. Global News has confirmed the suspect, 50-year-old Eric John Shastelo, had previous romantic relationships with both victims. Shastelo was found dead Monday near Bridal Falls of an apparent self-inflicted gunshot wound. 
Meanwhile, the Canadian Femicide Observatory is releasing some very chilling numbers today. In the first six months of this year, 88 women and girls have been killed in Canada. Most of the alleged perpetrators are men. One woman or girl continues to be killed every other day in our country. And B.C. was second only to Ontario in terms of the number of women and girls killed by violence, with 15 women or 15 victims rather, between January and the end of June. Well, after more than seven weeks of witness testimony, the jury in the Amanda Todd sextortion trial is now hearing closing arguments from the Crown. As Catherine Urquhart reports, prosecutors are recapping their case against the Dutchman accused of harassing and extorting the BC teen before she took her own life. Carol Todd arrives at BC Supreme Court in New Westminster. This is week eight of Aidan Coban's trial, the Dutchman accused of harassing and extorting her daughter Amanda before Amanda died by suicide. Today's closing arguments start. It's a little stressful. It's been a long eight weeks. Coban has pleaded not guilty to five charges, including criminal harassment, extortion, and possession of child pornography. Crown prosecutors have begun closing arguments after defense indicated it wasn't calling any witnesses. Crown is going through a timeline of four main episodes in which Amanda was harassed and extorted, detailing the order and content of messages she received. And it's really complex. If, if you sat in court and listened for the last seven weeks... Um, we've learned about technology and VPNs and routers and Wi-Fi and software programs. It's alleged Coban obtained topless video of Amanda, then used it against her, trying to force her to perform pornographic webcam shows. Crown alleges Coban used 22 fake social media profiles during his sextortion campaign against the teen. In 2012, the 15-year-old posted to YouTube this video about being cyberbullied. Soon after, Amanda took her own life. Crown's closing arguments are expected to continue for several days as the 12-member jury hears the prosecution review and tie together evidence from more than 30 witnesses and 80 exhibits. Catherine Urquhart, Global News. Well, it's a long journey these days to get a nexus. Hundreds of thousands of Canadians are waiting for their travel cards to be approved, while Canadian enrollment centres remain closed. Up next, the B.C. woman who can't wait any longer and the extreme lengths she's going to get that coveted card. Hey, stay back. A bear encounter that got a little too close for comfort. That's later on the news hour. And a former NHLer weighs in on the sexual abuse allegations shaking up the hockey world. That's still to come on the news hour tonight. Right now, though, with Nexus centers still closed in Canada, the backlog of applications is building. Hundreds of thousands of people are waiting to be processed, and those who've received notice to book an interview simply can't find one in a reasonable time frame. That's forcing one B.C. family to go to extreme lengths to get out of the slow lane. Richard Zussman reports. Getting to the fast lane, grinding to a halt. 
My daughter's nexus is coming due uh, for the expiry in September 2022. So we're desperate now because we have no idea what's going to happen. During the pandemic, Barbara Cullen's daughter, Eon, had her Nexus card expire. After an automatic two-year renewal due to COVID, the card is now set to expire for good in the fall. Worries, no Nexus, will make it extremely hard to visit Cullen's widowed mother in Washington State. The problem is we go across the border a number of times um, a month because my mother's a widow down there and we're all the family she has. So I don't want to be able to... Uh, I don't want to have to wait in line. Right now, none of the Nexus centers are open in Canada, and getting an appointment in the U.S. is verging on impossible. So out of desperation, Collins booked the one appointment she could find, meaning in September she will be flying with her daughter from Vancouver to Winnipeg, driving across the border to tiny War Road, Minnesota, conducting the renewal appointment, then driving back to Winnipeg before flying home. What I'm even worried about is she gets an interview and she, they have about two weeks to now approve it. So what if they don't even approve after the interview? I'm not even sure this is going to work. So it might just be money down the drain. Collins is far from alone. Right now, there are 341,688 Nexus applications waiting to be processed. Once a card expires, the person is put back at the end of the line. Patrick Ayu has been trying to book an interview since 2019 with no luck. You're just along for the ride. You can't, um, you know, it's out of my hands. Like, I just have to wait until they, they say, yes, now you can do interviews or no, we're just going to have to restart this whole process all over again. So it's just seems a bit frustrating. One of the main reasons Canadian renewal centers are not open is because of a dispute between the U.S. and Canada. Canadian officials do not want to allow American officials to carry guns at Nexus renewal centers in this country. There are legitimate shortages of labor all over the place in every industry, so we can be somewhat sympathetic to that. But having some kind of dispute like this keep offices closed just makes no sense to me. Uh, I just Google in uh, Nexus. Back to Collins. She has one more complication. Like many, they're still waiting on a passport hoping eons arrives just before their planned trip. Richard Zussman, Global News, Victoria. Well, it has definitely been a hot one today. The high temperatures we've been warning about have arrived. Senior meteorologist Christy Gordon is here with more on just how hot it got today and what the next few days look like. Christy? Well, they certainly have arrived. Sophie, we were the hot spot in in Canada, Lytton hitting 40.2 degrees today. Again, give you that perspective, though, 40.2 today versus the 49.6 that they hit during the heat dome. We're nowhere near that. Nonetheless, we broke a number of records, likely a dozen. We're still telling the official numbers. Environment Canada will likely have those out later tonight. But here's some of the initial ones or unofficial ones. Chilliwack hitting 37.8 degrees today, breaking a record from 1971 and surpassing it by almost four degrees. Port Alberni 37.7, Squamish 37.1, and West Vancouver 34.1. And again, there'll be many others. But it's not only the temperature, it's also the number that you see here on the right. The humid X values across the south coast, where we saw the peak of the heat today, were really high, 40 to 44 out through the east metro Vancouver and Fraser Valley region. Now, we are going to see the temperatures come down a little tomorrow. Today was definitely the peak for the south coast but it's going to remain above 30 right through till saturday so we've got a prolonged period of this heat definitely something to be taking care of uh, you need to be taking care of yourself and when i come back we'll have a look at other parts of the province sophie and the why we have an air quality health index now mm -hmm. in place
Lots of things to think about. All right, thanks, Christy. Up next, saying sorry is just the first step. Right now is just words and uh, need action further to that. Reaction from BC to the Pope's historic apology. Also ahead, a community effort to clean up vandalism. The paint party today in Chinatown, still to come. Good evening. Traffic is moving pretty well over here in both directions at the Alex Fraser Bridge. And good news on the Richmond side, just cleared a crash westbound on the 91 near Westminster Highway. Get best-in-class protection and savings with BCAA Insurance. Learn more at bcaa.com. I'm Trish Jewison in Global One at the Alex Fraser Bridge. Global BC presents the 30th Annual Honda Celebration of Light. Join us this summer to explore the festival, save your spot, then see the skies come alive. Honda Celebration of Light, July 23rd, 27th, and 30th in partnership with Global BC. is wrapping up a religious pilgrimage this afternoon to Lac Saint-Anne. The lake was inhabited by indigenous peoples long before the first settlers arrived. It's now home to a shrine to Saint-Anne and a national historic site. For more than 130 years, pilgrims have been descending on the lake at the end of July. And this year, the Pope joined them, blessing the water and sprinkling it on the crowd. This is the Pope's last event in the Edmonton area. Tomorrow, he heads to Quebec City, where he'll hold a mass for reconciliation. Well, reaction is mixed in B.C. to that historic apology Pope Francis gave on Monday for the Catholic Church's role in what he called the evil of residential schools. As Kylie Stanton reports tonight, she spoke with Indigenous leaders in this province who say words must be followed by action. It's a moment that's been 180 years in the making, now considered by many to be a milestone on the path to reconciliation. Sorry for the ways in which, regrettably, many Christians supported the colonizing mentality of the powers that oppressed the indigenous people. On Monday, Pope Francis delivered the long-sought-after apology on the grounds of a former residential school in Maspuchi, Alberta. His words met with applause from survivors in the indigenous community, many who traveled to bear witness to history in the making. I believe it to be truly sincere. He was also feeling the depths of what had happened to us as First Nations, Indigenous and Métis individuals. But there appears to be a consensus. This is just the first step of many on the journey to forgiveness. I think it's well and good to certainly have words to state that you're sorry and ask for forgiveness and, and perhaps uh, uh, some repentance. Uh, but I think it's uh, really important to have action. That includes, but is not limited to, rescinding the policy that gave effect to the doctrine of discovery, releasing all residential school records to Indigenous people, repatriating anything that was taken from Indigenous people, and providing the promised compensation to those affected. You know, so it's just really a mixed bag of emotions across the country, as you would expect. Sayers and her family are sharing their disappointment, protesting the papal visit, saying the pontiff simply did not go far enough. I would like to have seen him apologize fully for the church, for all the past 
people who, you know, violated our people, uh, you know, a more fulsome apology, you know. There was another opportunity during a mass held Tuesday in front of a crowd of roughly 40,000 at Edmonton's Commonwealth Stadium. I'm of the Holy Spirit. The pontiff, speaking through a translator, talked about the importance of family and recognizing the unconditional love from older relatives. But despite many Indigenous people in attendance, there was little mention of the work left to be done in that community. We didn't talk about the healing, what steps the church are going to be doing and trying to help them with healing. The Pope continues what he calls his pilgrimage of penitence for another four days before returning to the Vatican. First Nations, Inuit and Métis can only hope the visit sets the tone for years to come. Kylie Stanton, Global News. And of course, we understand these stories may be triggering for our viewers. And there is support available for survivors and their families. The number is toll-free, 24 hours a day, and you can speak in confidence. 1-800-721-0066. Coming up, concerning news for expectant mothers. Go and talk to your doctor, talk to your hospital. How supply chain problems are affecting epidurals in Western Canada. And later on the news hour, the taste of climate change, the impact of higher temperatures and extreme weather on some key ingredients. Good evening. Here we are at the Massey Tunnel where all is well. Two lanes in both directions, just minimal delays out of Delta into Richmond. Through a charitable partnership between Kermac Cares for Kids and Surrey Memorial Hospital, when you choose Kermac Collision and Autoglass, you also support the Surrey Memorial Children's Health Centre. I'm Trish Jewison in Global One at the Massey Tunnel. Vancouver's Chinatown continues to fight back against graffiti vandalism. The Chinese Community Policing Center holding another paint party today in partnership with the VPD. Volunteers with Citizens Crime Watch helped members of the Lim Sai Hor Association cover the alley wall of their heritage building on Carroll Street, which has been repeatedly targeted by taggers. This is what the wall looked like in February. It has been painted over several times since, but continues to be hit with unwanted graffiti. Especially this historic heritage building, I don't think they're paying enough respect to it. It was built by uh, the Chinese Empire, Empire being the Qin Dynasty Reform Association back in 1903. And this is only the uh, first of two known Qin Dynasty built building uh, in Canada. I definitely feel like that um, every day there's, um, with all the effort combined, we're getting somewhere. The graffiti removal event began this morning with volunteers getting rid of tags along Pender Street between Maine and Carroll. A major development that would have transformed downtown Kelowna has been turned down by city council for now. The project would have included three towers atop one podium, stretching over more than a dozen properties. It would have included condos, rental apartments, a hotel and commercial space. City planners told council they didn't support the project because they felt it was premature and deviates from the city's official community plan. Staff recommended a negative recommendation to not move forward with further planning of this of this site, mostly because it was premature knowing that we have other decisions um, currently downstream right now with UBC, as well as some other um, high-density towers in the downtown area. 
I think it'll make the city neighborhoods in that area and east of that area very uncomfortable uh, that uh, we're not following our OCP at all. We're basically changing it uh, significantly. Well, council agreed with city planners and rejected the project for now, they have left the door open for the developer to present something different at a later time. Officials are closely monitoring a developing situation in Western Canada that affects obstetric patients. There appears to be a global shortage of epidural supplies, and this, understandably, has some expected parents on edge. Karen Lieberman reports. On Tuesday morning, healthy baby boy Jalen was born to mom Shanisa Shaw. Initially, labor went fine, and then I started getting a lot more pain. Shaw hadn't planned to get an epidural for the pain, but things quickly changed during delivery. I ended up getting the epidural, because I I, at that point, I knew I couldn't handle it anymore. I got my epidural, and I, I got to sleep. I relaxed. It is one of the most popular choices for pain management in labor. But right now, in parts of Canada and countries around the world, there is a shortage of epidural supplies. Ontario's Ministry of Health tells Global News this province has an adequate supply of epidural catheters and women are able to access epidurals for childbirth. But the ministry will be engaging with Health Canada, suppliers and others to understand the situation and supply forecasts to mitigate potential impact. It certainly is something that's on all of our minds, and it is a concern when we think about the possibility of it happening. Health Canada says the shortage is due to a supply chain issue from one component of the epidural catheter kit, and it's working to determine if this is a national shortage. So far, Alberta, Manitoba, Saskatchewan and B.C. are experiencing varying degrees of constrained supplies. Go and talk to your doctor, talk to your hospital Call and see if there's going to be any shortage that's going to impact you that they know of. While this may be unsettling for some expectant parents and others who may benefit from epidural for pain relief, there are alternatives. We will always recommend using water to help manage the painful sensations in labor. The water kind of changes your, your buoyancy and kind of the gravitational pull on you. But also literally moving helps decrease your painful sensations. Over in Alberta, there is about a two-week supply right now of epidural equipment and ongoing conversations about what to do in the event supplies do run out. Meantime, in Saskatchewan, there is already a chance right now that if you need an epidural, you may not get one. We'll be watching Ontario closely. Back to you. Karen Lieberman reporting tonight. Still to come, a reckoning for Hockey Canada. I still want to see hockey thrive in our country. What a former NHLer is calling for as sexual abuse allegations continue to swirl. Also ahead, the curious cub who got a little too close for comfort. Christy Gordon is back. We talked about uh, heat warnings, uh, Christy, of course, the last few days, but there's also an air quality advisory too. Yes, and I was going to show you that just in a couple of minutes, but that's exactly right, Sophie, and it has to do with the heat and the sunshine we're seeing. First, I just want to quickly give everyone a perspective of what we're going to see tomorrow on that trend once again. Today, we hit 37, 38 degrees away from the water. That's not likely going to be the case across the south coast. So we're talking about more so 34 uh, at the peak for areas away from the water, some areas even lower than that. But the key is that it's going to stay above 30 right through till Saturday and that overnight lows are going to hover 
between 17 and 19 degrees for those of you away from the water. So it's a prolonged period. Now's the time to maybe get a plan together. If you don't like the heat, uh, make sure that you have a way to cool your body. And we've talked about a few uh, ways. Certainly a cool bath is a great one. But as Sophie mentioned, this has actually kicked off an air quality advisory. So this is the Air Quality Health Index. It shows a moderate risk for East Metro Vancouver and the West Fraser Valley. And that's because of low-level pollution, that when the sun actually hits that low-level pollution, especially in times where we're getting prolonged sunshine and heat like we're seeing, it changes it to ground-level ozone. And that can be uh, problematic for people uh, when they're breathing it. So again, moderate risk at this point, but a heads up. Those of you in the interior, you're expecting the heat right through till Sunday. But the peak of your heat will likely be today. And again, tomorrow, you'll see a touch cooler. But temperatures are going to be hovering around 20 degrees through the overnight period. And that's particularly in areas like Ashcroft, Lytton, Lillooet. Those are some of the key areas that we'll be watching for that heat. As I mentioned earlier, we have one area across the province uh, that could not see the sunshine, and that is the west coast of Vancouver. If you're headed to Tofino, get ready for cooler weather. In fact, on Thursday, you could see a bit of drizzle in that thicker fog and low-level cloud. Meanwhile, the rest of the province enjoying sunshine. And I really do urge you to enjoy it. But don't forget, shade is your friend these days. And so is a nice, cool drink of water and popsicles. I actually just crushed about two popsicles in less than a minute a couple seconds ago. Tonight's central windows weather window coming to you from Sheridan Lake. Donna Marshall capturing this. She said it was just earlier this week when we were having uh, some uh, Aurora Borealis action. Great shot. Are your kids aware that you stole their popsicles, Christy? <laughs> <laughs> well, we have one particular flavor that I'm the only one that likes it, so they're all mine. Oh, well, that's very convenient. All right, good for you. Thank you. Yeah. A mother bear was trying to get her cubs away from people in Kitimat when she lost her cool. Hey, stay back. Hey! Hey! Joey Ford was enjoying the weather along the Kitimat River when the mama bear and her cubs were spotted. They did everything you're supposed to do, make noise and give the bear space. But they say the sow was stressed from all the people around and was trying to get the cubs to a safe place when she went rogue. No one was injured in the encounter, fortunately. Hey! Do you have thoughts? Uh, my like thoughts are, that's why I don't often go in the wilderness. <laughs> I don't see any bears in my elevator at the apartment, so I don't go where they live either. Maybe the bear just wanted to do a selfie or, you know. <laughs> that's quite an aggressive selfie. <laughs> um, what do you have coming up? Well, um, the Whitecaps are going to have a huge crowd uh, for tonight's game against Toronto. This, of course, is the Canadian Championship game. We'll talk a bit about that. Talk about Sean White, the Lions kicker, who's from around here and of course, came back to BC this season. And also, uh, I think one of the Seahawks' better players, I'll say that, one of the Seahawks' better players when healthy has been forced to retire because he's not healthy enough to play anymore. All right, and later, how climate change is shaking up what we eat, including ice cream. Two high-profile allegations of group sexual assault have rocked the world of Canadian hockey. Former NHL player and victim advocate Sheldon Kennedy says he can remain silent about the situation no longer. Tweeting, the same people with a new plan expecting different results is the definition of insanity. He wants the leadership at Hockey Canada to resign.
I still want to see hockey thrive in our country. And I don't think we're going to be able to get there unless we see real system change. And to me, um, I feel that the board and the leadership group at Hockey Canada right now who uh, are don't have the capacity uh, to make the decisions needed uh, to have the cultural shift that I think we all desire. Kennedy calls this moment a gut check for hockey, with sponsors pulling out and the federal government stepping in. Kennedy was abused by his former junior hockey coach Graham James and is now a spokesperson for violence and abuse in hockey. All right, Squire is here now. Yes, I am. It'll be a warm night at BC Place. But the roof is open. Well, that's good. They figured good, out how to open the roof. Oh, that's good. Because it was, it was closed. Then you just press a last button. Last week. Well, apparently the button wasn't working. Or something wasn't working. That's a problem. But now it is. Now it is. They've cranked it open. And we are about mm, just over 30 minutes away from the kickoff of the Canadian Soccer Championship game between the Whitecaps and Toronto FC. And this will be the biggest crowd for the Whitecaps this season. Well over 23,000 tickets have been sold already. They expect a lot of walk-up buys as well. And they also expect a lot of offense in this game. Vanny Sartini himself would be very surprised if tonight's game was a low-scoring affair. I have in my mind that uh, we can score more than one. We probably need to score more than one goal to win. And, uh, yeah, it's uh, uh, the most important thing that we score one goal more than that. That's, that's the most important. But I anticipate a, thing, a game where the, where the defense will be a little bit under pressure, yes. And if it is to be a wide-open game, Cody Cropper will be the Whitecaps' last line of defense. After missing the last couple of starts because of concussion protocol following that collision, in the game against Cincinnati on July 13th, he is expected to be Vancouver's starting goalkeeper tonight, sending Isaac Bomer back to the bench. Well, the BC Lions have always liked having veteran kickers, guys who've been around a long time, and not just that, but guys who grew up in BC as well, like Louis Pasaglia and Paul McCallum. And Sean White fits perfectly for the Lions because he's from White Rock. He's now 36, and he's been around the CFL since 2009. And like Pasaglia and McCallum, Sean White seems to age like wine instead of aging like milk. This is where it all began for me. Uh, Neil McAvoy and Wally Bono found me when I was 18 years old kicking rugby balls at Semiamu Secondary. So uh, I've always wanted to come home, and it's, uh, it's you know, everything happens for a reason. I, I, I left because I needed a starting job, and now I'm back, and... You know, I'm finally the guy from my hometown, and it's, it's a dream come true. You wouldn't be wrong right now if you're thinking that Sean White's football career has come full circle. Twelve years after making his Canadian Football League debut with the Lions, he's once again back in the den. White spent four seasons in Montreal, and six in Edmonton, becoming one of the CFL's most consistent field goal kickers. Last year, his field goal percentage for splitting the uprights was 87.5%. This season, White's a perfect 7 for 7. Honestly, at the end of the day, kicking's kicking, okay? So, you know, that's one of the things that, you know, unlike other positions where you need to have the physical attributes to play, I mean, if you're a young man kicking 50-yard field goals and punting like he was at that time, we're going to take a look at you. And so regardless of what his background was, the fact is he could do it, is able to do it, and still does it for us today. So we're excited to have him as part of our team. It's easy to forget that when White first broke into the CFL, kickers did double duty punting the football along with their field goal duties. That doesn't happen anymore. It's also routine to nail field goals from 50 yards or more. White's longest being 55 yards. 
I'm not a big power guy, obviously, but uh, I say from 15 in, I'm pretty accurate, and I, I strive for that. Uh, and obviously, I'm always trying to get stronger and all that. But my biggest thing, man, I just want uh, the coaches and my teammates to trust me and, uh, and to depend on me. This team, they set the standard pretty high on each other, and I'm just trying to keep up. Keeping up in the kicking world means pushing the boundaries on how far you can guarantee your team three points. Field goals are coming from greater distances, and while White's 36-year-old leg has plenty of life in it, he knows where his kicking bread and butter is. Hey, uh, you can kick a ball at uh, 80 yards, but you better make it within 40. So uh, I think that's my biggest thing is just making those shorter kicks and being consistent. Smooth as can be. Seahawks running back Chris Carson has been forced to retire after just five seasons with Seattle because of a neck injury. Carson was an underrated running back, maybe because he wasn't drafted until the seventh round in 2017. The Seahawks and Seahawks fans knew how good he was. The rest of the NFL never seemed to take the same notice, but in five years he scored 24 touchdowns. And in some ways he ran like Marshawn Lynch used to for Seattle. He would not just run by people, Carson would often run through them as well. The San Jose Sharks have a new GM and Mike Greer, and now they have a new head coach in hiring David Quinn, the former Rangers boss. He's going to take over the Sharks from Bob Bugner, who was dismissed after last season. Quinn coached the Rangers for three years when the Rangers lineup was not as good as it is now. But in San Jose, he kind of gets a team that's really not a playoff contender either. In fact, they've missed the postseason three years in a row, and San Jose was the third lowest scoring team last season. This, you know what this is? This it's is Blue Jays a, Dance Party back. featuring Vladimir Guerrero Jr. That now that's a smooth vibe. Only in his head. To left field and it's gonna go. This is the music of a two-run homer from Guerrero. That made it 2-1 in the first. And this the is a breakfast at Denny's. It's a grand slam. And the Blue Jays are up 9-3 over the St. Louis Cardinals. Have I made you hungry now? Yes, I was more of a moons over my hammy I was going to say, girl. moons over my hammy. But the hash browns, second to none. I know nothing about potatoes. Oh, that's what true. They You're allergic like, to so. them. Yeah. Well, I can tell you, they're delicious, and okay. I'll have your share. I'll take your word for it, and you can have mine. <laughs> Speaking Always. of food, yes. thank you, Squire. You're welcome. Food for thought, how climate change could rewrite the menu. Up next. Jordan Armstrong standing by with a look ahead to Global News at 11 tonight. Jordan? Sophie, a vigil for the victims of the Langley shooting spree is happening tonight. It begins in just a few minutes from now. In the small plaza adjacent to Cascades Casino, we'll have coverage at 11. Plus, a convicted U.S. pedophile wanted since 2001 and featured on America's Most Wanted has been arrested in southeastern B.C. Lewis Flood was nabbed in Creston two weeks ago after RCMP got a tip that he was in the Kootenai town. These stories and Squire with Whitecaps postgame at 11. Sophie. All right, thanks, Jordan. Well, climate change is bringing higher temperatures and extreme weather events, as we know, and soon some of your favorite foods could be affected as well, with raw ingredients harder to grow in this hotter world. It's chocolate chip cookie dough day inside the factory where Ben & Jerry's makes its ice cream. Bite-sized chunks of frozen cookie dough get added, followed by chocolate chips. But climate change is threatening this popular ice cream pint and many others. All of these flavors in the cup are endangered. They are because they've all got cocoa, coffee, vanilla, 
nuts. All of these ingredients are actually now under threat. Cheryl Pinto is known as the sorceress at Ben & Jerry's because she sources all the raw ingredients. She says sustainable chocolate is getting harder to find. 60% of the world's chocolate comes from West Africa, where poor farmers are facing the effects of deforestation. 80-90% of the trees are gone. When you start removing the forest, you actually impact the regional weather patterns. Researchers forecast 90% of the area in the region currently used for cocoa cultivation won't be able to grow the crop by 2050. And the type of coffee being used in 70% of worldwide coffee production can't tolerate temperatures over 73 degrees. Unfortunately, where we grow coffee, which is more towards the equator, those areas are getting affected the most by climate change. Plant scientist Dr. Alan Van Dyne says farmers will need to adopt new species of endangered crops. I'm an optimist. We're finding varieties that can take the heat a little better, and some crops are going to thrive more than others. But Van Dyne's and Pinto agree. New varieties will taste different and cost more to grow. What we have to do, though, is be very aware of where our food is coming and how do we support those farmers. She says in this warmer world, consumers should demand their cold treats are sourced well. Elise Preston, CBS News, Waterbury, Vermont. I'm fine. Strawberry is my favorite, so not coffee, not chocolate. Oh, okay. look. What Which... kind is that? <laughs> what kind Mango. is that? Mango. Mango. That's the one that no one else likes but mm -hmm. you? Huh? Really? Oh, wow. I mm. That's mango. delicious mango. But so good. Fancy popsicle, Christy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, really. So, do you want to take <laughs> a well, break? I, and I have to buy juice popsicles. <laughs> you can't just buy the sugary ones, right? Mm. No, those are the healthy ones for sure. Yeah. And they'll keep you cool, and we need that. So I'm, I'm going to ask you to just mm -hmm. take a pause on your popsicle for a sec. Put the popsicle down. And uh, give us a five-day. So what we're concerned about is the fact that it's going to be hot right through the next five days. So through till Saturday, not as hot across the south coast as what we saw today. We'll likely see the temperatures drop by two or three degrees, but still above 30, that's for sure. So take care, everyone. Still popsicle and eat your popsicles. <laughs> all right. Enjoy it. Thanks, everyone. Oh, that looks like fun. Have a good night, all.